our great loving Father, on this day as we remember the death of your Son, we pray that you would captivate us by the power of the cross and by the remarkable exchange, the innocent for the guilty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This week, there was one story that broke through the coronavirus news. And that was the announcement that George Pell's conviction was overturned. Some people cheered as he walked free, but others were devastated. Some people applauded the legal system, but others were dismayed. Some people believed that justice finally prevailed, but others were disgusted. In this Holy Week, it was a reminder, a sober reminder indeed, of the abuse that has occurred within the church and how a trusted Christian leader, how trusted Christian leaders have committed unspeakable acts to the little ones they were supposed to protect. The institutional church has failed the flock and it is an ugly and tragic injustice. These things stir us up deep down because we long for justice. We hate it when guilty people are declared innocent and we are dismayed when innocent people are declared guilty. And that is why the story of the crucifixion of Jesus stirs us up every Easter. The most innocent man of history is executed for a crime that he didn't commit. But the injustices don't stop there. An innocent man is declared guilty and executed. But a guilty man is also declared innocent and is released. It is a grave injustice. And every Easter, we're reminded of this travesty. But even though it is the most acute perversion of justice, it is also the most stunning amnesty. And that's what we're going to have a look at today as we consider Jesus and Barabbas. For the events of Good Friday are a classic example of corruption and self-interest. The leaders and politicians did not act honestly. They did not act in a way that preserved justice. They acted corruptly. And through their actions, a completely innocent man was executed. This scandal, this corruption, this evil is at the heart of the Good Friday events. Corruption is at the heart of Good Friday. And this Good Friday, we will stop and look again at the shocking and yet stunning circumstances that saw a guilty man set free and an innocent man condemned. The historical events before us are found in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 to 26, which was read before. And in these 12 verses, we see the details of how this injustice unfolded. We read in verse 15 that there was a strange custom that the governor had each Passover festival. Verse 15, now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. Now, it's a kind of a strange, I think, that the governor 
who in this case also acts as judge of a person's innocence or guilt, that he might let a mob of people decide to release a guilty criminal back into society and to treat them as though they were innocent. It's a pretty unusual thing to happen. You couldn't imagine it happening today. And in fact, you kind of think that it shows how lightly the governor treated justice if he was happy to have a notorious criminal set free simply because the crowd liked him. But that's how it worked. The people could choose a criminal, a prisoner, and the judge would set them free as innocent. And with that background information, we meet the man who would be at the heart of the act of injustice that we're about to see. Verses 16 and 17. Uh, This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? We're now introduced to the two contestants in this macabre game show. The two people whose fate would be decided by this kangaroo court, by this backyard jury, by this den of corruption. And it turns out that the two people here share much in common. Both of them, it would appear, are accused of political insurrection, of basically having a political uprising. But there's something else that is in common, and that is their name. See, not all English translations of the Bible make this clear, but it seems most likely that the man known as Barabbas shared the same first name as our Messiah, Jesus. The name Jesus was the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua, and it wasn't a particularly unusual name at the time. But it's interesting that it seems that many early scribes have found it too disrespectful to write Barabbas's first name, Jesus, in this historical account. But this seems to give weight to the fact that Barabbas's first name was quite possibly Jesus. So that means we have a tale of two people called Jesus, if this is correct. Which Jesus will the crowd choose to release? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ. Well, the crowd gathers and Pilate, the governor, addresses them. And he asks them to choose which Jesus they want to set free. Maybe the the crowd has been chanting, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And maybe Pilate thought that they were on the side of Jesus Christ. Maybe. Maybe they were some of the 5,000 people who ate when Jesus miraculously fed them from a boy's lunchbox. Maybe they were some of the thousands who saw Jesus heal people and send out demons from the afflicted. Maybe there were some of the many people who only one week earlier had welcomed Jesus Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And they welcomed him like a king. Perhaps Pilate, the governor, thought that the crowd would want Jesus Christ released. Perhaps this is a way that he could undermine the leadership of the religious leaders and set free a man also that he knew was innocent deep down. It would be a perfect way to kill two birds with one stone. But there was also the issue of, of Pilate's own conscience. 
For we read in verse 18 that he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. See, Pilate knew that the reason Jesus Christ had been arrested and flogged and now was awaiting execution was because he, re- he threatened the religious leaders at the time, the Jewish leaders. Jesus spoke out against their corruption and he preached to everyone about how they completely missed the plot. Jesus Christ was the one that had been promised in the Old Testament. We read about him so clearly in that reading from Isaiah 52 and 53 before. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything that was talked about in the earlier history of God's people. But the rulers at the time of God's people didn't buy it. And Jesus threatened them. So they chose to get rid of him, to have him put to death. They wanted to silence Jesus by killing him. Well, Pilate knew this, and perhaps he hoped that the crowd would see the truth about the corruption of the leaders. But before we hear what the crowd chooses, we now switch to a new scene. And in verse 19, we see Pilate sitting on the judge's seat, sitting in the place where he would go to deliberate about the innocence or guilt of the person brought before him for trial. But as he's sitting there on that judge's seat, he gets a strange message. Verse 19, we read that just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. See, Pilate is sitting there on the judgment seat, trying to work out what he does, innocent, guilty, what will he do? And then he gets this message from his wife. It wasn't a text message, obviously, but he gets a a written message to say, don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Because he's innocent. She's got this terrible nightmare. And so she feels compelled to warn her husband that Jesus is innocent and that her husband shouldn't have anything to do with him, which surely you would think that that was a sign to Pilate. If you were sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do. Do I, don't I, do I, don't I? Oh, I'll just wait for a sign. And then there's a knock at the door. Yes, there's a message from your wife. Oh, what is she going to say to me? He's innocent. Don't have anything to do with him. It's like, wow, didn't see that coming. But what is very clear is that Jesus is clearly innocent. Pilate knew it. Pilate's wife knew it. Everyone knew it. Jesus was the only man who ever walked on this earth who lived his whole life without ever committing a sin. Now, in the Bible, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says, In him is no sin, none at all. If there was anybody who would escape God's anger for sin, if there was anyone who would escape God's judgment, it was Jesus. He was and still is the only man who has ever pleased God with his life. Everybody else has failed. Be very clear about this. You have not done enough to please God with what you've done in your life. Only 100% perfection is good enough. And there's only one man who's ever got that score. And that is Jesus. And yet now, Jesus, this innocent man, the most innocent man in history, now stands waiting for the verdict from the crowd. He stands waiting like a 
some sort of horrible game show contestant waiting for the votes to be counted via SMS. Will he live or will he die? And the meat in the sandwich is Pilate, the governor, who knows full and well that Jesus is innocent. So what happens? Well, we read in verse 20 that the conspiracy, the corruption continues. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. The worst outcome for Jesus is now looming because the same corrupt and evil leaders of the church do everything they can to stir the crowd up to get them to choose Jesus Barabbas, the guilty Jesus, to be released. And that would mean that Jesus Christ, the innocent Jesus, would not be released. Instead, Jesus Christ would be executed. Make no mistake, the death of Jesus was no accident. The death of Jesus was no accident. It was eyes wide open for those who acted to conspire to have him killed and to be executed and to be destroyed. And the leaders especially had blood all over their hands as they manipulated the people to choose Barabbas to be set free and Jesus Christ to be executed. And so Pilate, the governor, he asks the crowd for their final verdict. In verse 21, we hear their answer. Barabbas, they answered. Which Jesus did they choose? The innocent Jesus or the guilty Jesus? They chose to set free Barabbas and condemn Jesus Christ. And it's clearly seen in Pilate's question, verse 22. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd knew what they were doing. They wanted to see Barabbas set free and they wanted to have Jesus Christ executed. They wanted Jesus to be crucified in one of the most cruelest and painful ways known to humanity. But as the crowd made this horrible choice, they did so being reminded again of what Jesus the Messiah was really like. He was the Messiah, the King, the true leader of God's people, the one who was sent to save them from their sins and to lead them to glory. He was the leader they'd been waiting for since the dawn of time. And yet now they declared their intentions to have him brutally killed, even though he was clearly innocent. And this obvious innocence is now on the lips of Pilate, the governor. In the next verse, verse 23, he says, But why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate recognises that Jesus Christ has committed no crime at all, but the crowd keeps screaming out, Crucify him! Crucify him! The Messiah, the King of the Jews, was to be sent away to be painfully executed. 
but crucifixion was also an execution that was full of shame. He would hang publicly for all to see. At the time when he would seek dignity, he was given shame. When he sought dignity, he was given shame. And what's more, he was considered to be cursed. Because as it says in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. But Pilate's plan, therefore, seems to have gone terribly wrong. He, he wanted Jesus Christ released and Jesus Barabbas punished. And so Pilate seeks to distance himself from this injustice. Verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Pilate knew that Jesus was locked in a path that was going to lead to his execution. And in what has become such a famous gesture, he washed his hands in front of the crowd and declared his own innocence. You see, Pilate really, if he, was, if he had some guts, he would have stood up in front of the crowd and said, no, as the one who administers justice in this land, I will not let this man be executed. But what does he do? Gutless Pilate washes his hands and declares himself innocent, not Jesus Christ. I am innocent of this man's blood, he says. Pilate worries about himself, not about Jesus. He passes the buck and he weasels his way out of responsibility. And so hopefully the people would see this powerful gesture of, of hand washing and wake up to this ghastly act that they were about to commit. But no. Verse 25, and all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. Or as other translations of the Bible translated a bit more literally, the crowd says, his blood is on us and on our children. Which means that we will take responsibility for his death. But there's something deeper about what they've said. Because in a breathtaking admission of guilt, they say, his blood is on us and our children. The crowd knew what they were doing. Their eyes were wide open. Pilate's washed his hands of the responsibility, like, like Shakespeare's Macbeth, washing the blood off his hands that will not wash off. And the people hear his damnation upon them for their injustice. And they boldly and somewhat ironically say, his blood is on us and our children. They know what they're doing. They're prepared to have the blood of Jesus Christ upon them and their descendants. Those people present there in that crowd are prepared to wear the blame for the death of Jesus and to pass that blame onto the next generation. They're happy for history to know that it was the decision of the crowd to willingly send the innocent Jesus off to be killed, to be executed for a crime he did not commit. 
And so in the final verse of today's passage, we hear the outcome of this kangaroo court, verse 26. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Their wish was his command. Pilate handed Barabbas, the guilty, over to the crowd as a free man. But he took Jesus, the innocent, away to be crucified. There is a staggering, stark beauty in this tragedy. There's a stark irony in this tragedy. For as the people in this crowd say, let his blood be on us and our children, they did not realise that the blood was on them and their children. But, But not the blood of guilt, but the blood of atonement. Not the blood that condemns, but the blood that forgives. Not the blood that kills, but the blood that saves. For if anyone in that crowd had have seen the innocence of Jesus and had trusted in him as their king, then the blood upon them would not be the blood that condemns, but it would be the blood that would save them. Jesus' death wasn't just a death. It was a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And by his blood, those who trust in Jesus are redeemed from the slavery to sin and death. Those who trust in him are given eternal life and are freed from hell. Those who trust in him are forgiven, not condemned. Where do you stand this Easter? Is the blood that is upon your shoulders a blood that condemns or a blood that saves? Is Jesus your king? Have you trusted in him so that his death that seems so pointless might in fact be the very thing that saves your life? For those who trust in Jesus are given eternal life and are freed from hell. Those who trust in him are forgiven, not condemned. And this this remarkable swap that came at Easter, this great exchange, is seen most starkly in the story of these two Jesuses, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. For these two Jesuses were as opposite as you could possibly get One Jesus, Jesus Barabbas, was guilty of a crime. And yet he was treated innocently. But that happened because Jesus Christ, though he was innocent of crime, was treated as guilty. The guilty was set free. The innocent would die. It is in fact possible that Pilate originally prepared three crosses for crucifixion, expecting to crucify Barabbas and two other co-rebels. And so in a real sense, the cross that Christ died upon 
was the cross that was made for Barabbas. And since that is true, it means that if you are a person who has trusted in Jesus, who has taken advantage of the free gift of grace through his death on the cross, then you and I are like Barabbas. We are Barabbas. All we deserve has been given to Jesus. And like a lamb to the slaughter, Jesus willingly swapped his perfect life for our sin through his death. And he gave us the freedom from sin that comes only by the powerful and successful swap of Jesus' life for ours.